Snap Studios. Step Judgment is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Okay, so you might not believe this, but in the rashness of an ill-spent youth, I went to law school. I actually liked it. But in law school, they try to trick you. They tell you that this raft of completely different Supreme Court decisions is some sort of cohesive whole. They pretend that there is such a thing as judicial logic. That all these contradictory judgments and philosophies about power and who gets to decide what, that it all makes some sort of sense. Perhaps you just aren't smart enough to get it. And then maybe, if you're lucky, someone suggests you read some of the other books. The ones that don't teach in class. The ones on the back shelf. The ones that ignore the happy talk and instead recount what really goes down. The ones that let you know all this supposed judicial analysis is noise. Lipstick on a pig. Judicial opinions don't determine who has power. Judicial opinions follow power. Judges follow power like dogs follow whoever's holding the treats. And if you want to predict a judicial decision for fun and profit, first determine where the power is. Don't waste time trying to parse legalese. Just figure out who has the juice and act accordingly. So look around our current landscape. If you place corporate interests against, I don't know, the environment, who's going to win? I know where I'd place my bet. And if you hear that a long-established judicial opinion, a supposed bedrock of modern American legal jurisprudence like Roe v. Wade is going to be relitigated? Ask yourself, who's going to battle? Who has the power? And the opinion writes itself. The words are noise. No right in America has ever been granted. They have all been seized. And some of them are being seized right back. So today, on Snap Judgment, we very proudly present power. The winning, the losing, the taking, the fighting, the wielded, stealing. My name is Gun Washington, and you're choosing to listen to Snap Judgment. Now, the story you're about to hear was produced for BBC Radio 4 by Falling Street Productions. And as you likely know, people, especially women, are increasingly being threatened for simply speaking from their perspective. And this story does mention the threat of sexual assault. The piece traces a line of connection between four women who explore the unexpected consequences of speaking openly about abortion. Snap judgment. You kind of lose our sense of time. Um, 
I didn't sleep, didn't sleep because I was afraid I'd oversleep and wouldn't make the flight. There was a queue for security and I just had this really strong sense of standing in that line and and looking at other women, thinking, are you, is it you, are you travelling too? All the clinics required you to stay overnight for the abortion pill and I couldn't do that, which meant I, I knew I was facing into a surgical abortion to be back and forth in one day. Um, and I just felt angry, so angry, so angry all the time and wanting to get it over with and wanting to just be home and out the other side. And that anger, I think, um, that's what drove me all the way through. Now tonight, um, much of Ireland will be transfixed by the final of the Rose of Tralee International Festival. The annual festival crowns one young woman, the winner following a week of judges assessing how well she behaves and represents her home country. If you don't know anything about it, it features about 30 women with Irish heritage competing for the title Tralee Rose. Sydney Rose, Brianna Parkins, was writing about her experience in the Irish Times recently, where she said that being the Sydney Rose was both the best and the worst year of her life. Well, she joins us live now from Sydney. My name is Brianna Parkins. I was the 2016 Sydney Rose of Trilly, or as many people remember me, year one who gave out about abortion. Um, the Rose of Trilly is a pageant without being a pageant. It doesn't have a swimsuit competition. You are not judged on looks. There's no world peace. There's no pouting. There's no posing. There's no modelling. Millions of people watching big live TV event. It's kind of, it's sort of like Eurovision in a lot of ways because it's so cheesy, but everyone watches it. The backstory to this whole thing is when I landed in Dublin, the repeal mural, the Mesa Art one, had just been taken down. Dublin City Council said it was too political and that's sort of when the repeal movement got a big social media boost and you had these women with jumpers and these T-shirts. Now, thousands of people are expected to take to the streets of Dublin as part of the Rise and Repeal March, which calls for abortion to be made legal. I just wanted a T-shirt. And I hadn't meant to wear it on the thing at all. It was just sort of, I might wear it at the end of it. I'm flying out going, hi, Sydney Rose supports you. Like at the very end, probably a small personal thing rather than like a big statement. Um, and I'm reading more and more about repeal while I'm there. And I'm getting angrier and angrier. Um, about the situation in Ireland where we basically said to women, we don't trust you, you're irresponsible, you can't make these decisions for yourself. Um, women who had also had wanted to have children and had had non-viable pregnancies and then had been forced to go to England and then bring the remains of their child back in a shoebox in the boot of their car to have a burial. Women who have been made to miscarry over days and days and days, almost turning septic because a doctor can't just do a DNC and step in. And so this is just bubbling away inside me. And I start to think, how can I be a women's rights activist if this thing is happening before me, in front of me, in this country? What kind of hypocrite would I be if I 
got up and then just didn't mention the very obvious elephant in the room. Where are we off to next? This year's Sydney Rose is 25-year-old journalist Brianna Parkins, whose mum's family hailed from Dublin's Liberty. I remember going out on stage and they make you wave to the camera like, then the Sydney Rose, and you're like, this really daggy wave to the camera. And I thought, right, now I can't. I've changed my mind. Can't do it. Not happening. Sydney Rose, Brianna Parkins. Get through the whole interview, not even thinking about it. I'm like, oh, no, I backed out. I'll wimp out and I'll do like a lame tweet about it later on about like oh but actually I meant this this is fine I can live with myself I'll just go home and not it'll be fine but then he asked me about the women's rights question you're also a campaigner for women's rights focusing on domestic violence I am because in Australia we just had our funding cut for domestic violence I just remember coming out of my mouth (laughs) I just remember taking a deep breath and being like I'm like we should do better in Sydney and uh, it's just not on and I think we can do better And I think we can do better here in Ireland. I think it's time to give women uh, a say on their own reproductive rights. And I would love to see a referendum on the 8th. Time stopped. Like I just felt like the collective intake of breath. Did she just say that? You can feel your heart beating, you can hear it, and the blood rushing. I think it's time to give women a say To me it was just a deafening silence. And I would love to see a referendum on the 8th coming up soon. That'd be my dream. But when I watch the tape back, I can hear applause. So there must have been applause, but I couldn't hear it. I just turned to the host with a smile, like, yep, I've just done that, and you're going to have to now wear this. And without taking a breath... You have had a very busy time with your hair. I have. He had the the smoothest transition I have ever seen from abortion to let's do a samba dance. So uh, you are a great uh, samba dancer. I wouldn't say great. Well, I'd say com- competent. Oh, and you like samba. Let's do that now. We've only kind of rehearsed this once or twice and apparently it's hand or three, one, two, three, so it should be fairly straightforward. Yeah, if you can count to three, you've got it. Didn't miss a beat, like consummate professional. We are stepping back on our right foot. Okay. And we're going. Yeah. One, two, three. Yeah. One, two, three. And then the next day, of course, I was on the front page of every newspaper. Sydney Rose yells about abortion. Twitter is just going off. Go back to where you came from. You're not Irish. Go home. How could you send a baby murdering girl over? Is she a plant? You'll pay. We'll be sent to hell. We'll send you there ourselves. We know what hotel you're in. Because they do. Like, we stay in this one hotel called the Rose Hotel. We're all on one floor. We had our names outside on the door, so I took my name off. Threats keep rolling in. The most upsetting ones are probably rape threats. Really graphic details. I was like, I'm going to do this, this, and this I'm going to rape you and you're going to love it and X, Y, and Z. And I'm just getting bombarded. And I thought, you know what, I'm not going to let them show that I'm afraid. So I, I put up a photo. I dug out the T-shirt, put the T-shirt on and said, you know what, repeal the A. Thanks for the support. I remember watching the dawn break over this little back street in Tralee and thinking, it's going to be okay. You'll move on. They'll forget about it. It's 24-hour news cycle. You're just a contestant. You said a thing. People get over it. And they didn't. There is a sense of um, quietness about the day. In the waiting room first I heard one Irish accent and then you move to a second waiting room and there were a number of us with the wheelie cases and then you hear people talking on the phone or you hear them 
asking a nurse a question and you're aware that, you know, you're one of six in that clinic on that day. And that was, um, that was shocking to me. And it shouldn't have been because all the statistics would have backed it up. But to be actually there on that day, on a random day, with five other women was just, it was devastating. At one point, the nurse went through asking when our flight times were so that they could line us up according to surgery to give us the maximum amount of recovery time. One of the women said, oh, I can't believe I booked the 10 past six flight. What was I thinking? I wasn't expecting to be delayed. And she got to, she got to go first. She got to go first. It sounds ridiculous. We weren't queuing for a fun fair ride, but she was taken in first for surgery and... Um, the nurses going through everything that we could and couldn't do after a general anaesthetic and one of the things that she came up with was you can't drive because you've had a general anaesthetic. We were all driving back to various parts of the country. I mean, I was lucky I was going to Dublin from the airport, but there was, were other women who were going to Limerick, going to Kilkenny. There was one girl who was very young and very quiet and just did kept herself to herself. And then when that other woman made the comment about her flight time. I just said something to the effect of, I can't believe this is happening to us. I can't, this isn't this ridiculous, you know, that we're having to think about this. And I'll never forget, I was sitting right next to her and she had blonde hair kind of in her face. I said something like, we have to do something about this and we go home, we have to, this can't go on. She looked up and her hair kind of fell away from her face and she looked at me in horror, I mean in horror, as if I was mad and said, are you kidding me? I will never speak about this to anyone as long as I live. I'm Siobhan McHugh and I come from Dublin originally and I live in Australia in a place called Austinmere, which is a beautiful place by the ocean. I'm a radio documentary maker, but also an academic who teaches journalism at the University of Wollongong. Bree Parkins was a student of mine, and so I saw this stuff erupting on Twitter. I got really emotional, I got really moved because I couldn't believe that, what is it, 35 years after I had essentially lost my career in, in Irish radio for having the temerity to have a woman on who would even articulate and offer opinions about women's need to control their own reproductive rights. 35 years later, a young woman I had taught, she had gone back from Australia to Ireland and she'd stood up in public and she had claimed the space and just said so beautifully and so strongly and with such conviction that what she wanted to see was women to get the rights over their own bodies and to see a repeal to the Eighth Amendment. So 1983, 
somebody had the idea that abortion, although it was already completely illegal in Ireland, was not illegal enough. And they thought that it should be actually written into the Constitution that the right of the fetus was equal to the right of the pregnant woman, which would ensure that nobody could give precedence to the woman and allow an abortion. A referendum campaign began from the point of view of those who were against abortion. It was to put an amendment into the Constitution. Meanwhile, in the Irish Republic, a fierce political argument is increasing the divisions between the Catholic and Protestant communities. The controversy concerns the emotive social issue of abortion. Who in Ireland wants abortion? There are just a few misguided and evil people who, under the guise of greater freedom, would allow the same laws to be introduced into our country that have led to murder of millions every year throughout the world. Abortion is already illegal, but some conservative Catholics are now seeking a referendum to make it impossible to change the law on abortion without a further referendum. In other words, they are trying to make the ban on abortion virtually irreversible. And it divided the country like nothing since the Civil War. So there were families split down the middle and people not talking to each other. I was, you know, I'd been living away from home for 10 years at that stage. So all my friends were very much in the anti-amendment camp. But I was aware in the radio station and obviously from debates in the newspapers and all the rest of it of how divisive the issue was. And we had a policy at the radio station at the time about what you could do, balance, objectivity. And certain items, if they were subject to upcoming votes, you couldn't discuss them except in a news format within a certain period of time in, in, you know, before the referendum. To recognise that, but also to recognise the interest in the people on both sides of the debate... My radio show had a format where between 9am and 10am we had somebody come into the studio, play three of their favourite records and, you know, use that to sort of discuss their life history. And so I had proposed that one week we would have Anne Connolly as our guest who had founded the Well Woman Centre, who could speak broadly about the new wave of feminism and women's rights But she was not overtly identified with abortion. She was identified with women's rights to all kinds of uh, reproductive and health rights. And the following week, for balance over the longer term, we would have Mina Ban E. Cribbing, who couldn't have been more different and would speak pro-amendment. And this we decided at our weekly production meeting, where we would all put forward our guests, and it was approved by the boss... In came Anne Connolly. We couldn't discuss the actual referendum, but we discussed all the other background things to it. Somewhere before one o'clock, I was called into the boss's office and I was informed that I was being suspended, that I was, quote, not fit to produce programmes with serious editorial content and I would be reassigned 
And I said, what have I done? It was vaguely framed. Somehow it was to do with the guest I'd had on. And I said, but you approved her. There was just this kind of almost a smile. No, I didn't. Don't go anywhere, Snappers. When we return, the consequences. Snap judgment. Support for Snap Judgment comes from Odoo. What is Odoo? Well, Odoo is an all-in-one management software with apps for every business need. Odoo has apps for CRM, accounting, sales, HR, inventory, manufacturing, and everything in between. And they're all in one easy-to-use software. And the best part about Odoo? All Odoo apps are integrated, helping you get things done faster and more efficiently. So when you think about business, think Odoo. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash snap. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash snap. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the power episode. Sensitive listeners are advised. When last we left, Siobhan McHugh an Irish radio host just had Anne Connolly as a guest on her show. Okay, well, my name is Anne Connolly, and back in 1978, I set up the Well Woman Centre in Dublin. While abortion is illegal in Ireland, referring women to clinics in Britain is not. Anne Connolly runs a women's health centre in Dublin and meets a great many women who come to her wanting abortions. Where do you stand as far as um, abortion is concerned? Well, the policy of this particular clinic is that we believe the decision of the woman is, is hers and we offer a counselling service. And if at the end of counselling she decides she wants to have an abortion, we are prepared to help her. She can't have it here? She can't have it here. No, the penalty for abortion here is life imprisonment, no matter what the circumstances are. Life imprisonment? Life imprisonment, even if it's a teenage rape case. We couldn't get a landlord to give us a premises because of what we were doing. So the first challenge was finding somewhere. The second was finding doctors willing to work with us. We had a number of doctors at the very beginning, but about a week before we opened, they were told by the gynaecologist they reported to in the main acute hospital that they could choose between a career in that hospital or in the well woman. Two nights before we opened, they told me they couldn't come to work and I literally vomited from about two in the morning. I mean, my nerves were completely shot. Like, I was 23 at that stage. I knew nothing about employment, the sort of legalities of setting up a company. Ugh. 
We also then had an opening which attracted no media attention. So our first morning, we managed to get one doctor, but no patients. And then later that afternoon, a group of people from an emerging group called Society for Protection of the Unborn, SPUC, as we used to call them with emphasis, picketed outside our clinic. And we rang the media and the media were outside the door in five minutes and we were the front page of the evening papers and the following morning's paper. And the rest was history because we, we had been launched. We had advanced bookings for 100 beds every weekend. If a woman was deciding on a termination, uh, the pressures on her were considerable, time-wise and financially. And because of the travel involved, it meant that most women wanted to be able to have the termination on the Saturday so they could travel over Friday, come back Sunday... Uh, be back at work, be back at home, as though nothing had happened. Sometimes they would have told literally nobody. Literally nobody. What we would inevitably do is to say, look, we want one of the nurses here to stay with the Irish girls all the way before and spend a bit of time with them afterwards. So a lot of the clinics would go to trouble and find an Irish nurse, um, but it just meant that there was somebody to talk to in that period beforehand and somebody to be there afterwards that was there to look after them. The one thing I do remember is the kindness of the nurses, the kindness of... The staff and the normalcy of it that it was um, you know I think I was expecting kind of hushed tones and the staff speaking to you with their eyes averted and and darkness and secrecy and there wasn't there was openness and warmth and care and I because I, I'm so terrified of needles they went over and above what they probably normally do to help me and they held my hand when I had to get you know, the cannula in and stuff. Yeah, I was complication-free and it was relatively straightforward. But you're still sore. Um, and to have to do that and then just get in the taxi and get in the airplane, it just, it was horrible. It was horrible. And sitting, because you're so hungry, you have to eat. So sitting in the airport restaurant, eating with the bruise from the cannula on your hand and you're kind of thinking, I wonder, does everyone see this and know what it is? My flight was late, so I was just, you know, scrolling on Twitter and, you know, catching up on emails and and that was when I um, saw the Rosa Trilly hashtag and I remember seeing the link with the hashtag repeal the eighth and oh I actually do remember what what got me because you had that intake of breath when she said it. I would love to see a referendum on the eighth. Help me up soon. That'd be my dream. And then you heard the applause. And that applause was just like, oh my God. The applause. I remember you know, wanting to go to people, you know, beside me. They're clapping, they're clapping. In Kerry, they're clapping, you know. It, that applause was 
it was like a bam to me that day. This is other people saying it's okay. And that's, I don't need other people to say it's okay, but it's nice today to know that. Plus, I want to buy that woman pints. <laughs> I emailed Brianna to say thank you and to tell her where I was when I learned of what she'd done and and how bizarre it was to be travelling back from my own abortion while she was lighting up the stage in Tralee. And I read it and I cried. (laughs) And then I, of course, emailed her straight back and like, oh, thank you so much for your letter. It really meant a lot to me. She wrote back about how important it had been to receive my email because she'd had so much personal hassle over what she'd said and professional hassle and coming at her from all angles and that my email and story you know made her feel like it was worth it and I just watched her go from anger to hope to action and it was just so beautiful watching this woman who wouldn't even use her real name um, when she first emailed me because she was so scared of even publicly admitting that she had an abortion A week after I travelled, I had to go back to the UK with my family for a family occasion. I remember being in the airport and looking, actively looking to see who's travelling today, who's making up the numbers today. My husband had the kids off somewhere in the shop buying something and I remember sitting and I had to take the two sides of the chair in the airport in the terminal and hold it and grab them so tightly to stop myself from standing up on the chair and screaming at people, do you know what people are doing from here today? Do you know? Do you know? About five months later, I have to travel to the airport again, so I printed out... I don't know, 60, 80 stickers. And I plastered the airport angrily in them. And they were in the gents, they were in the women's. Um, and I plastered stance at the airport with them and the tube stations on the plane. It started with travelling for an abortion. You're not alone. This airport holds the shadows of the tens of thousands of women who've travelled before you. We see you. We offer you strength and solidarity on your journey. We support you. Be well and get angry. They can't keep doing this to us. Hashtag repeal the eighth. It just made me feel better. Um, And it's something I've done a few times when I've travelled since. like a lifting I remember like driving in and seeing the big Dublin Kent Centre or whatever and thinking I don't want to be anywhere else in the world right now you could offer me any money but after that exit poll last night I want to be here today with with my people like with my together for yes people following are the results of the 36th amendment of the constitution everyone just coming in and waving and smiling and hugging votes in favour of the proposal 
And then to meet Brianna then. The vote count, when the vote came through, yes, and we just hugged, and it was just the nicest meeting. She was emotional, I was emotional. It was um, it was just a lovely moment with someone that I, I don't know, but I'll always be connected to, like, always. Always. This story, A Sense of Quietness, was originally produced for Lights Out, a Fallen Tree production for BBC Radio 4. It's produced by Eleanor McDowell and features Brianna Parkins, Siobhan McHugh, and Anne Conley, along with a woman who asked to remain anonymous, with additional recordings courtesy of Zoe Cummings and Reagan Hutchins. We'll have links to more documentaries from Falling Tree's Lights Out series at snapjudgment.org. Now, when Snap Judgment returns, a war between two grandmothers. Stay tuned. What do we want? Equal rights. Why do we want it? Now. What do we want? Equal rights. Why do we want it? Now. What do we want? Equal rights. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the power episode. My name is Glenn Washington. And we've got the lights, the cameras, 3,000 screaming snappers at BAM, the beautiful Brooklyn Academy of Music, and for you, of course, the very best seat in the house, since the listeners are advised. My dear friend, Mr. Josh Healy, on Snap Judgment, live. There's a famous story in my family. When my parents got married, there were two family members who were supposed to be kept as far apart from each other as possible. (laughs) My great-grandmother, Barbara, and my other great-grandma, Henrietta. Barbara and Henrietta, two little old Jewish ladies, two feisty, powerful giants, each standing tall at four foot ten in a bushka and heels. And they were supposed to be kept as far apart from each other as possible, but there was a mix-up at the reception, and somehow they got seated at the same table. And when they did, they proceeded to play every immigrant's favorite game, Who's Had a Tougher Life? Barbara came out swinging. She said, well, uh, you know that my family, we had to uh, flee Russia when I was five because the army came and burned down our whole village. Henrietta was like, all right, we gonna fight? Let's play. Henrietta's like, oh yeah, well, the boat my family came over on, it was so bad, my little sister almost died before we got to Ellis Island. Barbara, she comes back flexing. She's like, oh yeah? Yeah, that's all you got, son? Uh, 
And obviously this is how immigrant Jewish women talk, uh, like bad battle rappers, straight out of the shtetl. Uh, she's like, yeah, uh, well, uh, you know, I had to drop out of school when I was 12 to work at a sweatshop on the Lower East Side. Henrietta's like, I wish I worked at a sweatshop. My whole family was unemployed during the depression. We survived 10 years off spam and matzo balls. No soup, just the matzo balls. And by this point, a whole crowd has formed around. All the families at the table, even my newlywed parents, they want to see the heavyweight bout. It's Ali versus Frazier. It's Nas versus Jay-Z. It's Barbara Rosenblum versus Henrietta Goldblatt, and Barbara goes in for the knockout punch. She stands on top of her chair, and in front of 150 guests at the party of my parents' wedding, shouts out, I had 12 abortions. <laughs> All self-performed. And that's the story that popped into my head when my girlfriend told me she was pregnant. <laughs> and I'm not proud that that was the first thing that popped into my head, but given what happened next, it was kind of crazy. I was 19 years old a sophomore in college. So I was smart enough to know that when your girl tells you she's pregnant, the first sentence out your mouth should probably not contain the word abortion. <laughs> so instead, I went for something far more sensitive uh, and mature. When she told me, I was like, uh, for real? <laughs> like, for real, for real? You sure you're not just a little late? She said, I don't think so. It's been 15 days. 15 days, man, I know nothing about women's bodies. But I thought I would be able to notice if she was preggers. Like she smelled different. Maybe like applesauce. Or every time she breathed, there'd be a little more air coming out. You know? Her name was Esther. We'd been together for six months. And I said I love you to her every night. But I also said I love you every night to my couch. So I wasn't really sure what this was. Well, I say, there's only one way to find out. We go to the store, come back, and before I know it, I'm looking at this pregnancy test I just bought at Walgreens for less than a super burrito. I open the box, the cardboard cracking like thunder. I'm 19. I can't even legally have a drink to celebrate if it comes out positive. I mean negative. I mean, we go to the bathroom together. It's the first time I've seen a woman pee. Thank <laughs> you.
It feels like she's going on forever. Like she's been storing the Pacific in her bladder for just this moment. Finally, the trickle stops. She hands me the stick, eyes closed. You look. Ladies first, I say. She does. She takes a breath. Looks like I'm gonna be drinking for two from now on. I'm pregnant. For real, I say? For real, for real, she says, picking up her pants. <laughs> so what should we do? And I know what I'm supposed to say, right? I'm supposed to say something supportive and strong and sensitive and sweet and serious all at the same time, which is really easy in the moment. So I say, uh, maybe we should try another test. <laughs> But I can tell that is not the answer she is going for right now. So I say, look, 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 uh, you know I'm here for you. I'm here with you. And whatever you want to do, you know I've got your back and apparently your belly. What I'm really thinking is, please say you're not ready. Please say you're not ready. I mean, I don't want her to do anything she doesn't want to do, but I do want her to do what I want her to do for what she wants to do. <laughs> you know what I mean? Esther sits down. She takes a breath, she takes my hand, she puts it on her belly. She says, I mean, I know we're not ready. I'm too young, you're too dumb. It's <laughs> a direct quote. I know it's not right right now, but I've always wanted to be a mother. I've always wanted to have a daughter. I say, you'd be a great mother whenever you think the time is right. She says, you know, it's funny. Ever since I thought I might be pregnant, I started thinking about baby names. If, so, if it was a boy, I was thinking Dominic. And if it was a girl, Barbara. Barbara, Barbara. I never told Esther about my great-grandma before. Uh, last month, I brought her home to meet the, my family, to meet the women who raised me, strong women with old names like Dorothy and Deborah and Francis, my grandma, my mom, my aunt. I'd fallen in love with an Esther, a name so old when you're born it comes with an AARP card. <laughs> I was raised by strong women, women who taught me how to show respect, do my own dishes, say my daily prayers to Audre Lorde and Billie Jean King. It was my Aunt Fran who taught me how to roll a condom onto a cucumber. I was not paying close enough attention, apparently. And it was my mom who first told me 
about the strongest woman in our family history, the woman who stole the show at her own wedding, my great-grandma, Barbara, who fled Russia and worked in sweatshops and had 12 abortions, all self-performed. No birth control, no clinics on the Lower East Side. She almost died in a tenement bathroom on Avenue C. But she lived. She lived and she fought for women and workers and immigrants and everything a nice socialist Jew used to do. She danced in the streets. She danced in the streets when they passed Roe v. Wade. She lived a long, hard, beautiful life like her, Barbara. When Esther said that name, I started to change my mind about what we should do. I said, maybe this mistake wasn't a mistake after all. Maybe we're supposed to have a daughter. She said, yeah, maybe not. Maybe not right now. I still need to become who I am to become a woman. And you, Josh, you definitely need some time to become a man. (laughs) And so a couple weeks later, we went to the clinic. And it was quick. It was safe. When the man with the picket sign outside said he'd pray for Esther's soul, she said, hey, good looking out. I held Esther's hand from when the doctor went in until the doctor came out. And yes, there were tears, pain, sadness, relief, all of the above. When it was done, I asked her how she felt. She said, I feel kind of hungry. Let's go get some lunch. And there were more tears over that meal. But when it was done, she was good and we were good. At the end of the day, it was just another, it was just a Wednesday at a doctor's office. No hangers, no back alley bots jobs. We were able to go on with our lives and graduate. And now, and now today, 10 years later, I'm still with Esther. Uh, yeah, you can clap for that. I do. She is my wife. She is, she is my midwife wife. Her job is to help bring babies into the world. And she helps women find their power, helps them heal, helps them make their own decisions, their own choice. And last month, Esther told me that she's ready now. She wants to have kids. She needs to have a daughter. There are lessons she needs to pass on. I agree, and I know someone else who would too. And we don't have any kids yet. Sorry, Mom. We don't have any news yet, but we're already talking about names. And if it's a girl, there's one name, one heavyweight champ at the top of the list. Thank you. Oh!
Joshua Healy. Holler when you hear it. Holler. Josh Healy performed at Snap Judgment Live in New York. The original music composed by Alex Mandel, performed by Alex and the Snap Judgment players Tim Frick and David Brand. Is recorded and mixed by Pat Machine Miller. Now, if you know someone lost and afraid, storyless, change their entire world. Tell them to follow Snap Judgment on any podcast platform because stories are life. And if you don't tell them, how are they going to know? And that's what friends are for. More amazing storytelling available for free at snapjudgment.org. Snap is brought to you by the team that knows to let Mark Ristich be Mark Ristich. Except, of course, for the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Nancy Lopez, Anna Sussman, Pat Massini-Miller, Regina Bediaco, David XMA, Renzo Gorio, Shana Sheely, Teo DeKai, Flo Wiley, John Facile, Marissa Dodge, Davey Kim, Bo Walsh, and Annie Nguyen. Special thanks to Yetta, Annie Nguyen, and Richard Bowie for collecting tape out on these streets for us. And this, this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, you could stand on the table to make your big announcement only to discover that the commercial's over. Vanna's spinning the wheel now. Pat's babbling something and you lost your big chance, but you would still... Even then, not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is PRP.